This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and they are truly keeping me from doing terrible things to uh, keep my six cats alive, like selling my internal organs on the street, or, you know, taking my cats on a cat circus, training them to do little tricks and taking them all over Western North Carolina, which my cats would very much not want to do. So, to save both me and my cats from that terrible fate, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for just a dollar a month. You get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer churned Christian progressive heretic Timothy McPherson, and we talk about the news, politics, literature, religion. From our slightly divergent perspectives, I am a Satanist and a minister of Satan in the Satanic Temple. He is a progressive Christian, so lots of overlap, but some differences as well. If that is interesting to you, then stop being a goddamn socialist freeloader and start giving just $1 a month to support this show and support my debilitating content creation addiction. So I have to thank the patrons who have signed up over the past 30 days, and they are JPeth, Mick, Tobias, Jonathan, and Meredith. Thank you so much. And finally... If you haven't already, please go subscribe to my newsletter. There is a link in the show notes. I try to write an article a week about things that are interesting to me, be it meditation, religion, spirituality, uh, Satanism. Lately, I've been particularly interested in the importance of speaking across divides, be it ideological divides, religious divides. And I recently had the multi-faith scholar on John Moorhead to talk about rules to, um, you know, basic rules of conduct for having productive conversations across ideological divides that don't dissolve into, you know, complete catastrophe. Uh, He said some fantastic things in that interview, so I extracted some to for the blog and provide some commentary, particularly the idea that the world is a dirty place, and in order for us to live in the world, we're going to have to get ourselves ideologically dirty. We're going to have to break bread with people who aren't like us. We're going to have to have conversations with people who aren't like us. So be it evangelicals, John Moorhead is an evangelical, or be it, you know, leftists, secular leftists like myself, the world is a dirty place. Interacting with people is a dirty process, and we need to embrace mutual contamination and allow ourselves to listen to ideas that we might struggle with. So if that is the kind of thing that's interesting to you, then please subscribe to my newsletter. Okay, with all of that out of the way, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Bart Ehrman to the show. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, We're both North Carolinians. We're both uh, ex-Christians, I think. Would you consider yourself an ex-Christian or are you? I would. Okay, awesome. I've been aware of your work for years and years now. I remember being like an angsty college student struggling with my Christian faith here in the mountains in Appalachia at a small Christian college and watching your uh, lectures 
on YouTube and your debates on YouTube about uh, misquoting Jesus, I think, and just being utterly devastated <laughs> by those lectures. But your work is extraordinary. I find your work incredibly humane and compassionate and also really rigorous. So it it's wonderful. The the I, I was looking at your list of books at the beginning here. You have this entire like gigantic roll call of books that you've written over the years about the Bible. Uh, and you have a new book out called Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End. I am reading it. It is excellent. Before we get started, go ahead and just tell us some about who you are and what you do. Fill in the blanks that I didn't uh, fill in there. Right. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. So I, you know, I teach at uh, University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Um, I've been here since 1988. Uh, I started teaching at Rutgers University. I taught there in New Jersey. I taught there for four years. I, uh, I'm a scholar of the New Testament, and I have a PhD in New Testament studies from Princeton Theological Seminary. And I, uh, I started out as a conservative evangelical and uh, left the evangelical tradition when I started finding difficulties in the New Testament, contradictions and discrepancies and historical mistakes. And I, I became a liberal Christian for a number of years and uh, was active in churches all those years. And then about 30 years ago or so, I... Uh, left the faith altogether. I was never drawn to Satanism. <laughs> I'm, a, uh, I'm, a, I'm a humanist. I consider myself both an atheist and an agnostic, but I'm completely sympathetic uh, to the Christian tradition, and I'm uh, a scholar, scholar, of, scholar of it, <laughs> of earliest Christianity. Mm, awesome. And just to clarify, because I think there's probably a lot of confusion about this, was it your scholarship of the Bible that led you away from the Christian faith completely, or was that something else? Uh, it was something else. I, you know, here in the South, of course, I get a lot of uh, students who come from conservative uh, backgrounds, and um, every semester I have students tell me that they've been warned not to take my classes <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> because they'll they'll deconvert. And I never, ever have any interest in deconverting anybody. Um, I, uh, I, when I started realizing that there were discrepancies, for example, through the, in the Gospels and contradictions, in, uh, it actually showed me how, how this was helpful for understanding these books and that you, can, you can't understand the New Testament if you assume that everything is saying the same thing, because in fact, they're not. And once you realize that there are discrepancies and contradictions, you take seriously that each author is trying to co communicate a message. Uh, and so the biblical scholarship I've done is does focus a lot on things like uh, historical problems and issues of historicity and if who wrote which books and you know, did Paul really write the letter to the Ephesians or not and things like that. It's historical stuff, but it didn't lead me away from the faith. And I don't think it should lead anyone away from Christianity. It should lead them away from fundamentalism. Uh, and that's what happened in, in my case. About 30 years ago, what led me away from the faith altogether uh, wasn't the scholarship. It was wrestling with the problem of why there's suffering in the world. If, if God's active in the world, and intervenes and answers prayer. Why is there such wretched misery so so much all around us? And I I'm always a little bit reluctant to say that because um, it means I get 20 emails from people explaining to me why they're suffering, and uh, which which I get. But um, you know I 
I do know what the solutions are. <laughs> I know what people have said. And I, you know, I read a lot of biblical scholarship. I read a lot of theolog theologians. I read a lot of philosophers. And I, I read and extensively thought and talked about it. But I finally just got to a point where I just don't, I don't believe there's a God who's active in this world. And so I don't, I'm an agnostic because I, if somebody asked me, do you know that there isn't a God? I'd no, how would I know? <laughs> but, but if they, you know, do you believe there's a, a divine being who's active in any way? I said, no, I don't believe that. So that's why I consider myself both an agnostic with respect to knowledge, I don't know, and an atheist with respect to belief. I, I don't believe there is. But it's because of suffering. It wasn't because of my biblical scholarship. Mm, yeah, I relate to that. Because, you know, I, up, until my, up until the very end of my faith journey with Christianity— and my faith really broke in 2017, and that's when I was like, no, I, I can't call myself a Christian anymore. I'm, I'm far outside the bounds of what a Christian is now. I was, up until that point, really comfortable with the complexity of Scripture, and in fact, I found a lot of the type of scholarship that you do actually really liberating, because I didn't have to force myself into a overly simple or reductionistic view of Scripture that was uh, contrary to reality. And so I felt like as a fundamentalist, I was constantly having to fight to put Scripture in the, sh in, the, in the strictures that I had it in, right? And that is such an overwhelming cognitive task, and I had to protect it from ever being what it actually is, which is a vast, messy, complex library of books that are inconsistent and all you know all the things that you point out in in your work about the bible so for me it i mean like you for me it was a a struggle with the existence of of a good god to begin with and i was i was comfortable up until the end of my faith with all of the complexities of scripture and what ultimately ended my faith was the proposition of god itself yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Tell me some about your story and the role that the book of Revelation played in it. So you described yourself, I think, just a minute ago as an evangelical fundamentalist. Um, and I know that the book of Revelation plays a big role in that. So what role did the book of Revelation play in your personal life? Yeah, so I was, um, you know, I was raised, I, I grew up in Kansas, and uh, I was an Episcopalian as a kid. We, we went to the Episcopal Church, where Revelation was never talked about, <laughs> and uh, uh, the Bible wasn't talked about much, but I really enjoyed the Episcopal Church. But then when I became a born-again Christian when I was uh, 15, uh, I became more intensely involved in studying the Bible. And I decided after high school to go to Moody Bible Institute rather than do, doing something kind of pedestrian, like go to a secular university or a liberal arts college. I decided to go to a fundamentalist Bible college. And that was when I really started studying the book of Revelation, because in fundamentalist circles, it has always been understood to be a text that was predicting what's going to happen in our future. And in fact, in our near future. Uh, this is back in the mid-70s, and at that time, a very popular book among evangelicals was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth. Many people won't know that book now, but in the 1970s, it was the best-selling work of nonfiction outside the Bible in the English-speaking language of any kind. I'm not religious book. I mean, just the best-selling book. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, yeah. it, sold, it sold a lot of copies, and it it 
it was a way, uh, Hal Lindsey was a, he had graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary, which was a fundamentalist school. And in this book, he mapped out what exactly was going to happen with, uh, with a crisis in the Middle East that would lead to Armageddon. And he has very precise predictions of, you know, first Israel is going to take over the Temple Mount. They're going to uh, destroy the Dome of the Rock. They're going to build the temple. There being a confederation of Arab states that attack Israel in response because they've torn down their, their holy site. And then, then the European Union is going to come in and there's going to be, and then Russia is going to attack and there'll be a nuclear exchange. And he has all this stuff. And, it's, and he'll quote verse after verse, right? Zechariah says this, and Daniel says this, and Matthew says this. Revelations all over the place. Like, it's revelation, this is all in Revelation. And, and wow. Oh my God, I had no idea. And people read it like the Bible. It was like for us, it was like the 28th book of the Bible of <laughs> the New Testament. It was like, and so, um, and I took a class at Moody um, that was on Revelation and I learned all about it. And so that was my that was my beginning point and where I just realized this is talking about what's going to happen to us by the end of the 1980s. Jesus is going to come back and we'll be raptured out of the world and then all hell will take, take place. And I really genuinely... Uh, believed it, so it was a very important part of my fundamentalist uh, life. Did the uh, did the movie uh, what what was that movie called? A Thief in the Night. Did a Thief of Thief in the Night. Th- Did that ever play a role in your life too? Oh yeah. yeah. Well, look, everybody my age at the time who was an evangelical saw that movie twenty times, and it scared the hell out of all of us. Virtually every friend I have who was an evangelical back then tells stories about what kind of psychological damage it did to them. <laughs> Because, you know, the movie is about it's it is a very low budget movie. <laughs> Preface it with that. I rewatched it a couple of years ago just to, to kind of re- refresh my memory. I couldn't believe how low budget it was. So it, the rapture happens and people are left behind and the Christians are taken out of the world. And um, those who are left behind face the face the issue with the Antichrist arising and and catastrophes hitting the earth. And and so my friend, everybody I know who saw it will tell a story about when they came home from high school one day, nobody was home and they were sure they'd been left behind and terrified by, oh my God, I missed the rapture. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, it yeah. did play a role in my life. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think there's, there are like multiple generations of evangelicals. I'm one of them who... For me, it was uh, because I was raised in a Calvinist Presbyterian home. For me, it was stressing over whether I was the elect or not. Like, mm-hmm. am I like being a fifteen-year-old staring at the ceiling in my bedroom at night, trying to fall asleep, just sweating bullets, wondering if if I was part of the elect or not? I won't for people who are there's. This is in the weeds. I won't explain what the elect is. <laughs> if you don't know, you have been spared. You are one of the yeah, elect. Yeah, I was pretty You're one of them going to heaven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if you're elect, you're going to heaven. If you're not elect, you're going to hell. But you don't know if you are elect or not. And so this, like, this screwed me up so much in uh, when I was in high school. Yeah, so there are, like, multiple generations <laughs> of evangelicals who are completely messed up by these experiences. So this actually gets to, I think, a really important question, which is, why should we care about what the Bible says? And why have you committed your entire career to studying the Bible and communicating what the Bible says, even for people who don't believe it? Why is this important? Why does it matter? 
that we know what Revelation does or does not say? Let me answer that in two ways, because there, uh, there are two issues that uh, matter. And the second one matters the most, but matters more. But the first one is, why do I bother teaching this? Because I get that question a lot. You, you don't believe this. Why are you teaching it? <laughs> and um, it, kind of, it makes sense from a religious point of view, but it doesn't make any sense from a university point of view. My wife teaches Chaucer. She doesn't believe in Chaucer, <laughs> you know. Right. And you know, I have I have friends who teach uh, who teach philosophy. They're not they're not Aristotelians, you know, or they're not Platonists. And I have people who teach uh, I know people who teach modern European history, but they're not. You know, they teach they teach they teach World War Two, but they're not Nazis. You know, it's like and so like why I don't. Uh, so you teach about religion, and that's religion is a major phenomenon in our culture, and. Um, and so in my department of religious studies, we have like I've got like 20 colleagues and they're teaching Buddhism and Islam and Judaism. And they're teaching all this. It's not, you know, some of them believe stuff and some don't. I don't know. We don't even talk about it. It's just like this is what we teach. And so uh, I teach this because it's really important, both culturally and historically. But the book of Revelation has, occupies a special place in that. In my in my book uh, Armageddon, the one that just came out that you were mentioning, I spend I spend some time talking about why it really matters that people have a, uh, a an interpretation of Revelation that's sensible, <laughs> because most most people don't read Revelation because most people are not fundamentalists, but people who are very conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists read Revelation in order to mine it. For uh, a verse or a phrase or something that they can, they take a little piece of it here, a little piece of it there, and then they they go around the Bible, they go to Daniel, and they go to Zechariah, and they go to Matthew, and they they piece it all together like this jigsaw puzzle to indicate what's going to happen in the year 2025, you know, or when I was in college in 1988, or then in 2011, or in you know, you just pick your date and you can find biblical proof for it. And it isn't just that it messes people's up, minds up the way you and I were just talking, but it has very serious implications in ways people wouldn't expect. Uh, and so in my book, I talk about how this expectation that the end is coming soon has um, it, it's it's not only caused psychological damage. It has literally led to carnage. Uh, it has affected U.S. foreign policy and it is um, and it you know, and it affects our it affects the fate of the planet in ways. I mean, that sounds exaggerated, but actually I try and show that um, this expectation that Jesus is coming back soon, it has had a very negative effect on, uh, on climate issues, on climate control uh, and on environmental issues. Because I mean, the, ba the basic line is evangelicals who think Jesus is coming soon aren't particularly ca caring about the Paris Agreement. You know, they don't care about climate control, climate. Why, why, am, why am I worried about cutting greenhouse and, uh, emissions by 2050? I'm not going to be here in 2050 either as anyone else. And so, mm. um, yeah, so in my book, I detail all that and explain why it really does matter that this futuristic interpretation of Revelation, it's not just that everybody's been wrong so far about it, it's that everybody's always going to be wrong because it's not the right way to interpret the book of Revelation. Mm. And so I try to show that. It reminds me of back uh, again when I was in college, I was a big conspiracy theorist and I was a big believer in the 2012 conspiracy theory that everything, and this was like, I was, I was in my early twenties, late teens, early twenties. 
And so my brain was just like infested with these conspiracy brain worms. And I completely believed that the Mayan calendar ended in 20, in 2012 and therefore everything was going to end. And I had all of these like apocalyptic conspiracy theories and I watched Alex Jones and like all of this bullshit. But the result was that I couldn't invest in my future. The result was I couldn't study, I couldn't focus, I failed so many of my classes, I couldn't invest in anything in my life because the world was going to end. And it's like that, but on a mass cultural scale. <laughs> it's with the with conservative evangelicals. It's like that, yeah. but instead of just me, it is a whole culture of people. So but also, like, on, on another note, I think it's important for my listeners to take the Bible seriously just because it is the most important book in Western culture. And yeah. regardless of whether we believe it or not, having a passing familiarity with it will never work against you, <laughs> right? Investing that time is, is going to be of benefit to you. Well, you know, I, I mean, in lots of lots of ways. I mean, I don't know, you know, you know, if you're interested in Western culture at all, you know, yes. <laughs> I mean, culture and history. I mean, if if all you want to do is you know watch sitcoms the whole time, it probably isn't going to be that important. But if you really want to know about like Western literature or art or philosophy or music, if you don't know if you don't know the Bible, I'm sorry, you're not going to get half of it. <laughs> yeah. You just not. And um, so uh, I think it's really important for understanding culture. It's also important because, as you say, the, I mean, the Bible is there's no comparison in terms of an important book in the history of Western civilization historically. I think that that much is is absolutely right. And Christianity itself has been the dominant power of the Western world, and it continues to be. And I'll just give you one example how it really matters in a way I don't deal with in my book. The Bible continues to be uh, cited as an authority to guide social uh, policy and governmental and legislation. So the, the huge opposition to abortion now is driven by, is by Christian concerns that, um, that the Bible teaches that uh, abortion is murder. And so people assume that that's just simply true, that the Bible teaches abortion. And if you believe the Bible, then you, okay, it solves the problem. When does life begin? In fact, the Bible never says word one about abortion. There is not a single passage in the Bible that explicitly mentions abortion. And the only passages that indirectly talk about abortion do not consider it murder. But you don't know that unless you actually read the Bible instead of just listening to people who are picketing outside of Planned Parenthood, you know, because they, they just assume that's what it says, right? They've heard preachers say that, but no, it does not. <laughs> it does not. Mm. And um, so it matters uh, for big issues, for big issues. Definitely. And since we are, since we've opened the abortion topic and it is such a big political issue right now. Uh, and I know this is a bit of a tangent, but can could you just quickly tell our listeners about the about what the Bible does slash doesn't say about abortion? Yeah, I mean, I want to emphasize that 
I'm, I'm happy to state my own views about abortion, but I'm not talking about my own views now. I'm not saying what I personally think about abortion. I'm just saying the Bible doesn't talk about it, except in a couple of places that are not on the side of the people plan, you know, picketing Planned Parenthood. So the first, there are only a couple of passages that, that have direct implications. One is in the book of Exodus, right after uh, God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, uh, there's a list of, there's a whole section of other laws that God gives. And some of these laws are about, if this happens, then this is the penalty. You know, so it's not like just thou shalt not kill. It's like, if this happens, this is what you got to do. And so one of the laws has to do with, if two men are in a fight and there's a pregnant woman standing next to them and the fight gets out of control and one of them hits the woman or somehow is either with a stick or with her, his fist or something and she miscarries, um, what's the penalty? Uh, and so this is in the divine law. The penalty is if the woman dies too, if the woman dies, then it's the death penalty. If she miscarries but doesn't die, then the person who's hit her is to pay a fine to her husband. In other words, it's not the death of a human being, which is the death penalty. Mm. It's a fine because her husband has lost some of his property. It's the same thing if you, you know if you kill your neighbor's ox, you got to pay a fine. Well, if you kill the fetus, you pay a fine. This is not a human being yet, mm. in their opinion. Uh, a second, a second one is in the Book of Numbers. In the Book of Numbers, there's this ritual: uh, what to do if your wife, you know, if your wife is pregnant. Or if somebody thinks your wife has committed adultery, you get there's this ritual that the priests undergo where they they mix up this kind of fancy concoction and uh, she has to drink it. And if she this is Numbers chapter five, if she drinks it and she miscarries, that shows that in fact she had committed adultery. If she doesn't miscarry, then it shows she did not commit adultery. Mm. But that means that God is ordering a you know, a, a drug to to abort a child mm. that can't abort the child. And so it's not it's not considered murder. It's just it's aborting the child. And so there, there are things like that. There yeah. are things like that. And uh, and not very many things like that. But there's nothing. You know, what, what, what fundamentalists do is they quote these passages that say things like to prove that, that, the, hum, that the, the fetus is human. They quote passages that say things like before I was in my mother's womb, you knew me, mm. a prayer to God. Okay, so before I was in my mother's womb, you knew me. And so they say, so, the, you know, you existed, you know, before your birth. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. So you're saying that that's literally, that's not symbolic or that's not metaphorical. That's, that's literally true. Yeah, that's literally true. Okay. But it doesn't say that you, that God knew you in the womb. It says he knew you before you were in the womb. <laughs> so are you saying you're a human being before you were conceived? Before you, you were a human being, <laughs> yes. Do you do you believe in the preexistence of the soul? Oh no, I don't think I existed before I was conceived. But that's what this verse says. You just said you wanted to take it literally. It says before I was in my mother's womb, and so <laughs> okay. So so you know the arguments they use are bogus, and they ignore the other passages. And again, I'm not I'm not taking a political stand. I'm just saying like, if you're going to use the Bible, at least use what it says and not what it doesn't say. Definitely, yeah. So. Thank you for that. That was a tangent, but it's an important tangent, especially right now. Yeah, I mean, everyone should actually go read the Bible. I mean, it's it's also the book of Revelation is also really influential with so much of the imagery in pop culture, like the the beast and 
uh, the Antichrist and so much of the apocalyptic imagery is ju- not just part of like the metal scene and and pop music, but also in Satanism and paganism, various uh, neo paganism. Like it, it's just so influential. So definitely, after you listen to this, dear readers, take some mushrooms and then. Read the book of Revelation. <laughs> no, don't do that. I won't. I'm not encouraging you to do that. <laughs> well, a lot of people think that John was taking the author was taking mushrooms, but I, but I will say, you know, the the problem with the Bible, as you know, is that it was written two thousand years ago, and parts of it just don't make sense to modern people unless yes. it's explained. And you need to hear. You need to go to a competent explainer. Um, it doesn't need to be my book, but there there are very good books about the book of Revelation. It most people. Most people don't finish it if they start it because it's just too weird. They can't. Remember, what in the world's going on here? And but if you have somebody explain it to you, it it really can make sense. But it's not talking about what's going to happen in our future. That's the key point. It's talking about what was happening in John's own day. Mm. That's not very scintillating or scintillating or exciting. It's not as exciting as thinking that you know we are the chosen generation that God is. All of history's come down to us. Well, lucky us. You know, it's not that, but it. But it is understanding this as it as it was meant to be understood, mm. and once you understand it, then it makes sense, and then you can make sense of a lot of the cultural references too. Mm. Fantastic, yeah. So, I I will say that people should read your book as the explainer book for for the Book of Revelation because it is awesome. So, in your book, you talk about two popular perspectives of the Book of Revelation. One is the evangelical fundamentalist view, which I think you described uh, while telling your story. But then there is also the kind of mainline liberal Christian perspective, and you argue that both are false. So tell us a bit more about these two views and why you think they're false, and what is the actual story about the book of Revelation? Okay, so okay, so that that would be three things. So I'll do one at a time. <laughs> so Perfect. The first view is the one we were talking about, you know, that it's predicting our future, as uh, Hal Lindsey thought, and as uh, Timothy LaHaye, the author of the Left Behind series, thought, and as many as fundamentalists just think, and many conservative evangelicals who aren't quite as as far right as fundamentalists think, that's predicting our future. The way people read Revelation to get to that. Is the way I was mentioning earlier. They 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 take different pieces of Revelation and mix them up with different pieces that they find in the Book of Daniel or Ezekiel or Zechariah or Matthew or whatever, and they they're finding little clues to what is going to happen in our future in these various books. And it's like they're looking for pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, and the jigsaw puzzle has this finished picture, and they need to figure out what it is. And so they get pieces from here, there, and the and everywhere, and Every time somebody does that, they end up making predictions that are proved absolutely wrong. <laughs> and it's because um, the, the Bible is not a jigsaw puzzle. The book of Revelation is not a jigsaw puzzle designed to provide pieces of the puzzle for you. And I, I tell you, Christians who believe in the Bible, if they believe in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is not, God did not inspire a jigsaw puzzle. He inspired this book. So even if you think it's inspired, you need to read it like a book. Because <laughs> if he wanted to inspire a jigsaw puzzle, he could have done that. And so the way you read a book is you start at the beginning, 
and you read all the way through to the end and you look for the themes and for the topics and for the flow of the narrative and you try and, and, and you try to figure out the symbolism in its context and you put it in its own historical context. And so that's what scholars do. They understand that this is a first century writing that is written to people living in the first century with a message for people living in the first century. It's not a message for people living 2000 years later. John was writing to people, he was writing to people he knew. He's trying to give them a message. And so you have to hear what his message was. So the jigsaw puzzle approach that evangelicals, many evangelicals and fundamentalists use is simply a wrong way to go about it. Um, you have to put it in its historical context. People who do that, scholars who do that, most scholars who do that are Christians. Uh, most, Of course, most scholars of the New Testament are going to be Christian scholars. I mean, there aren't too many people like me who are atheists who are scholars of the New Testament. There are some, but not too many. But even Christian scholars who are not fundamentalists or conservative evangelicals have long realized the book of Revelation is not talking about the future. It's to be put in its historical context. But the way liberal scholars have always read it, uh, well, for, for a very long time, is that it's not predicting our future. It instead is a metaphorical message of hope that, as you and I were talking about earlier, people are messed up, people are suffering, there's pain and misery in the world. And this book and this interpretation is meant to provide hope that those who are suffering now will, at the end, be vindicated. They'll be vindicated because God is going to come into the world and destroy all the forces of evil that are aligned against him. And he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And so that his followers then will be rewarded with all eternity and their enemies will be destroyed. And so it's a book of hope. That's what I thought for, for years and years. That's how I taught the book of Revelation here at Chapel Hill for probably 20 years, 30, 25 years. And now I think it's completely wrong. I don't think the book of Revelation is a book of hope. I got intensely interested in Revelation where I really started digging deep, read the scholarship and reading it like detailed in Greek and just really focusing on it a few years ago. And, you know, the word hope never appears in the book of Revelation, not once. The, the phrase love of God never appears in the book of Revelation. God is not said to love anybody in the book of Revelation. The key words in Revelation that occur a lot are words like wrath, vengeance, revenge, blood. Uh, you know, I mean, these are, it, that's what it's about. The book itself says it's about the wrath of God and his lamb. The lamb of God is Christ. And it shows the lamb of God who was, who was slain, he was crucified, and so he was, a, he was an innocent victim, but now he's coming back for blood. And, and man, does he... To see a certain power of the world, it's like so it's, think, it's like it's like a Halloween movie. It's like a slasher movie. Like Jesus has returned and he's back for blood. <laughs> yeah, but in the slasher movie, they die. I mean, in the Book of Revelation, you know, there's a passage in Revelation where one of the one of the catastrophes that Christ unleashes is this whole host of locusts come out of a bottomless pit. And they, they, they have the power of scorpions. They can sting people. And they are instructed to sting everybody but the followers of Jesus. And so everybody around the world is stung by these, by these locusts on, the, on God's command. And the sting causes unbelievable torment, where just excruciating pain for five months. And nobody can put an end to the pain. And they can't even stop it by killing themselves. 
They're not allowed to die for five months in excruciating pain. This is what Christ is sending against the earth. Yeah. This is not, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a message of hope for that tiny sliver of humanity who's ever agreed with John's view of what being a Christian is. But even most Christians don't qualify. And so this is, this, this I don't, I mean, yeah, it is hope for a few people, <laughs> but it is, it's not, it's not hope for uh, most of the world, especially most of the suffering world. You go through this life and you suffer horribly and then you die and you weren't, a, you weren't the right kind of Christian. Well, then you get tortured and you get thrown living into the lake of burning sulfur. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't read it that way anymore. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it. that was how—so when I was at a Christian college, that's actually how they taught it as well, uh, was, oh, this is a book of hope for the, the Christians who are languishing under Nero, under Christian persecution, and so on. Yeah. And yeah. then— and then you go back, and I, yeah, I mean, and then like you, I mean, you go back and actually read the book of Revelation, and what emerges is just like this fever dream by this, what seems to me, a small-minded, vindictive, angry, wrathful person. Yeah. And it's, it's really kind of an ugly, hateful book. It's really one of the really interesting things is how hateful it is for other Christians. Yes. Um, it, look, I mean, it is a message for hope for people who are persecuted under Nero who were martyred for their faith. Okay, so they would be, but the, you know, there weren't a lot of those. But but for you know, in in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, the author is instructed to write letters to the recipients of the book. So there are seven churches of Asia Minor. We're told these are seven cities that are on the west coast of what's now Turkey. They each have a Christian church in them. And John is told to write letters to each of the seven. And these letters are dictated to him by Christ. And so John's just serving as the scribe who's writing down Christ's dictation. And so Christ dictates a letter to the church of Thyatira, which one of these seven churches. Uh, and he, he attacks this woman leader in the church. Uh, she's she's a she's a leader of the church and he calls her Jezebel. So the word Jeze the name Jezebel refers to an Old Testament queen of Israel who was really wicked and would, led the people astray. And so John is saying that this woman, this prophetess in the church is Jezebel. He's leading, she's leading people astray because she's saying that it's OK for people to eat meat that's been offered to idols. In other words, if you want to have a in the ancient world, if you want to eat meat, you know, the way you get meat is you, there aren't butchers. You, the animals are butchered at a, at a temple in, you know, to, as a sacrifice to a god. And so if you want meat, you buy it at the temple because it's been sacrificed to a god. And, and this woman's saying that's fine. You know, if you're going to eat meat, you, you know, it's okay. Uh, because you, and she might be thinking, well, you know, they aren't gods, really. <laughs> it's not like, you know, it's not like they're really gods you're worshiping. You're just eating meat offered to some stone piece of statue or something. So she says, she says it's fine. John thinks it's the most horrendous thing he's ever heard. And he thinks this woman, Jezebel, is going to pay the price. And so what, what Christ says to this, this woman leader of a church is that he is going to throw her, Jezebel, on a bed. And men are going to have come and have sex with her. And he will plague the men who have sex with her. We're not told how, but it might be, you know, by sexually transmitted disease or something. And then Christ is going to kill her children. The children would be 
the people who are obedient to or who are following her teaching. So he's going to kill these people. That's Christ speaking. And But what kind of image is this that he throws her on a bed so men can have sex with her? And is she willingly accepting these men? So she's a fornicator or is she being raped? We, we're not told, but... You know, some translations translate this. They say, I'll throw her on a hospital bed. <laughs> hospital? There's no word hospital in this text. It's the <laughs> word for bed. And she doesn't get sick or she's not being treated by a nurse. She's having sex with four, with men. <laughs> this is not an hospital bed. And so this is what Christ is doing to a leader of the church, according to the book of Revelation. Oh, man, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> is, no, it, it's it's horrifying. And it also, what you were just saying makes me think like, oh, this is the beginning of the grand Christian tradition of dissing other Christians. Like this is, this is the beginning of the grand Christian tradition of, of shitting on and hating other types of Christians who are also Christians, but not Christian enough by your own standards. It's like, oh, that goes all the way back. (laughs) Oh boy, does it. And it's, um, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon throughout early Christianity, I guess, through the Middle Ages, and that the, you know, the, the early Christians really attacked pagans, you know, non-Christians, worshiping typical other gods, you know, Roman gods or Greek gods, and they really attacked Jews who were unbelievers. But their most vitriolic attacks were against other Christians. Yeah. And, uh, oh, man, and it, could be, it could be rough in there sometimes in the fighting. Definitely. So you talk about how the writing of the book of Revelation isn't actually that great. Like, <laughs> and, that, and that the writing of the New Testament isn't actually that great, but especially the book of <laughs> the writing in the book of Revelation. Talk some about that. What, because modern readers like myself would have zero idea yeah. that that would be the case. Yeah. Yeah. No, you wouldn't know because translators translate it. So it makes pretty good. It, you know, the English sentences make perfectly good sense. So the New Testament is it's all written in Greek. And some of the some of the authors are, are better Greek writers than others. Um, Greek is a sophisticated language and really, really high class writers. You can just tell are really sophisticated. I mean, it's like today. You know, if you read a book that your, uh, your next door neighbor wrote, you know, a, a novel, you know, that's not published, you know, you can, the person knows how to write English, but like, it's not, it's not great. It's not like reading, you know, a 19th century novel or like reading a, a major novelist. Now, some people are really good writers and some are okay. And some, and some not. So, so the New Testament writers are basically, you know, they're, they're competent and good. Re, the book of Revelation is written by somebody who's not very competent in Greek. Um, <laughs> he makes, he actually makes grammatical mistakes. Last time I taught a class uh, uh, on New Testament Greek, I had a class. I, I have a, I teach sometimes. I've got a, a joint appointment, a, cla- a, a a secondary appointment in the classics department at UNC, and so I was teaching a class for undergraduates, uh, and their Greek was really good. It was just on New Testament Greek. Their Greek was really, really good, and so I thought I'd give them a little challenge, and I, I gave them as an assignment: read the first chapter of Revelation and identify all the grammatical mistakes. <laughs> And these students could do it. And um, so it's not good. It's not good Greek. And so the question is why? And what scholars have long thought is what they've long said is that it's probably because the author had a different language as his first language. Maybe he had Aramaic. 
uh, or Hebrew as his first language. And so, and so Greek's a second language, and that's why he doesn't write so well. And that's what I used to teach. Then I actually read the research on it, and I realized, actually, there's not much evidence of that. And I looked, there are various explanations for it. I came to the conclusion, the man just can't write very well. And that's not weird. Most people in the ancient world couldn't write at all. And so if you could write at all, you were far above most everyone else. And so it doesn't mean that he's not intelligent. It just means he doesn't write very well. And, um, you know, so it's not a criticism, but it is a reality. Even in the early church, people looked at this thing and said, well, wow, okay, really? <laughs> because, it, you know, the, the highly literate uh, Christians. So what do we know about John of Patmos, the author of Revelation? Um, well, it's interesting that he does identify himself. He names himself John. He doesn't say uh, which John he is. John was a common name. In, especially among Jews in the first century. And then Christians picked it up as Christians started uh, having children. Sometimes they would name them after earlier disciples and things. This John does not call himself one of Jesus' disciples. There are some hints in the book that he's, he is indicating he's not one of Jesus' disciples. He seems to differentiate himself from the 12 disciples of Jesus. He's uh, located on an island called Patmos, which is off the west coast of Turkey. You can still go there today. People who, who do cruises on the west coast of Turkey often will often go to Patmos, and they've got a monastery there, and they have the they have the cave where John allegedly uh, wrote the Book of Revelation, and it's a nice kind of touristy area. It's pretty interesting, um, but we don't know why he was on Patmos. He says it was because of the tribulation he was experiencing because of the word of Jesus, and that's usually taken to mean that he'd been exiled by the authorities to Patmos as a punishment for his Christian preaching, but it's not completely clear that's why. It might be that he's there as a missionary, or you know, he's doing something that's involving suffering, being on Patmos. <laughs> Other than that, um, you know, all we can tell is what, what's in the book. He could write Greek, uh, not very well, and he's a he knew these churches in Western Asia Minor, so it's usually thought that he's from Western Asia Minor. He is not the author of the Gospel of John. Whoever wrote John did not write the book of Revelation and vice versa. That was recognized already in the third Christian century by some Christian intellectuals. We have one treatise by somebody who wrote, wrote to, to show on linguistic grounds that they're not the same author. They're both mm. different authors. So we don't so you know we don't know much about it, just mm. what's in the book. And I think when people think about the book of Revelation, they think about the rapture. So how does the rapture fit into any of this? So the rapture is the doctrine that Jesus is going to come back before the uh, catastrophes hit the planet during what fundamentalists call the tribulation period. It's usually understood to be a seven-year period where the Antichrist will arise and take over the world and catastrophes will hit. There'll be massive, there'll be wars and natural disasters and suffering. It'll be a horrible seven years. But according to the doctrine of the rapture, Jesus will come back for his followers before any of that happens, and they'll, he'll take them out of the world. He'll snatch them out of the world. That's rapture means to be snatched up. And so they'll be taken out. So the non-believers will suffer these, these catastrophes described in the book of Revelation. It's almost always thought that this is one of the teachings of Revelation. Uh, and that's absolutely false. The word rapture never occurs in Revelation. And the concept never occurs in Revelation. Revelation does not have a rapture in it. And either does any other book of the, of the Bible. 
some people will be doubting my saying that, but I try to demonstrate it in my book by looking at the passages that we always believed. When when I was a fundamentalist, we, we said, well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it's right there in black and white. Matthew 24, it's right there in black and white. It's talking about the rapture. But I show that these passages that people have always used for the rapture are not talking about the rapture. And I also talk about where the doctrine of the rapture came from. This was never a doctrine of the Christian church for 1,800 years. The doctrine of the rapture was invented in the 1830s. And we know who invented it. It was in 1833, and a guy named John Newman Darby came up with the idea of the rapture. And it slowly spread. He was, he was English. Uh, he started the group called the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, and it spread somewhat through England. It came to America, and it took off like wildfire. And, uh, and so that's why it's become, uh, it's become central within fundamentalism. And everybody assumes it's in the Bible, but it ain't. <laughs> right. <laughs> Made that one up. Right. And, and were the Left Behind books really the most significant uh, in in spreading that idea, at least. Like, I remember, so I went to a Christian high school. I swear, every single person was reading the Left Behind books. And they were reading them as, I mean, like what you were saying about the late great planet Earth. Like, it was another book of the Bible. Like, yeah. this is what's going to happen. Yeah. It's interesting because there's there's been scholarship on this, including an entire book called The Rapture Culture, Hmm. which shows the influence of the Left Behind series, not just on fundamentalists and conservative evangelicals, but throughout a large part of Christendom. When the uh, the main author, the, the person, the idea person behind this was Timothy LaHaye. Uh, he, when he died about six or seven years ago, there were 60 million copies of this thing in circulation. 60 million. I mean, there are only 333 million Americans, so one, and more than one person read each time. And so, I mean, man, this was massive. And this, the research has shown that the people who read this typically were Christians. They simply thought this is what the Bible teaches. Mm. It isn't that they thought that this was a novel or that this is an unusual interpretation. or They just thought, well, this is what the Bible says. Uh, and so it isn't that they were taking it as the Bible. It's just like this is this is what the Bible's. And so, yeah, so millions of people hmm. assume that this is this is the biblical teaching, and it's not. Um, yeah, and it's, it's not. And the the way people interpreted Revelation over the centuries would seem completely weird to hmm. most Americans today. But it's it, the common teachings than anything at all, like what fundamentalists now say. And fundamentalists have controlled how non fundamentalists understand revelation non-fundamentalists think that it, well it's talking about the future but it's wrong you know like like secular people you just well, what's revelation oh it's predicting what's going to be in our future but you know it's completely wrong but the idea that they that, that they even think it's predicting our future means that the fundamentalists have convinced them what revelation's about even though they don't believe it these other people don't believe it. but i mean fundamentalists are wrong about it. it's not what revelation's about yeah <laughs> but they won that one. Yeah, and and I think that we should actually care what the book of Revelation says. I think it we should actually like be sticklers for truth and like the truth matters. The fact there is a fact of the matter and uh the Bible doesn't teach or the, you know, the book of Revelation in particular does not mention or teach the rapture. And I think that 
matters, and that should matter for secular people too. Like it, that's important, and we should care about that. Um, I mean, one reason we should care about it is because if people think it's you know if if a large section of the American populace believes that the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back soon, it affects uh, how they vote. Mm -hmm. um, it affects how they understand uh, social policy and how they, uh, what kind of governmental intervention they want in things or not. And it's rooted, largely rooted in a misinterpretation of Revelation. It really does matter. Definitely. So we've spent the past hour talking about how bloody and terrifying the book of Revelation is, and the Bible really is full of just nightmare fuel. You know, I like when you actually sit down to read it, like I, I, um, several years ago, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to read the Bible from beginning to end. And it was like the most fucking nightmarish experience ever. And it was, and, um, it's just full of horrors. But as someone who has committed your life to studying this thing, to communicating the scholarship to a popular audience on about this thing, about the New Testament, is there stuff in the Bible that you love? What do you love about the Bible, and what strikes you as good or beautiful or noteworthy? I mean, I've got to tell you, on the whole, I love the Bible, period. <laughs> I mean, I just love it. I think it's great. Stories are great. Uh, if you, it, but if you take it literally and seriously, uh, it, it, yeah, it has, <laughs> there's some, there are a lot of rough moments in there and not just <laughs> revelation. No, you get a lot of people who say that the old Testament is the God of wrath, has the God of wrath and the new Testament has the God of love. And whenever somebody tells me that I say, yeah, yeah. when you read revelation lately <laughs> and it's, you know, because it's not about the God of wrath, but also the old Testament is the God of love is in the old Testament. I mean, Love your neighbor as yourself. Is the, that's in the Old Testament. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's in the Old Testament. Love is a big deal in the Old Testament. And so mm. it's really not fair to say one is a God of wrath and the other is a God of love. What I do in my book, in Armageddon, is I'm especially concerned about the place of revelation in the New Testament. I talk about why it almost did not make it in mm. to the New Testament. But I also talk about how it contrasts with other parts of the New Testament. And I'm especially interested in how the Gospels portray Jesus. Because in the Gospel portrayal of Jesus, he's not out for blood. He's not out for vengeance. He does not think he, he, he's not concerned to destroy his enemies. Jesus in the Gospels teaches people to love the enemy, to turn the other cheek, to give of themselves in service to others. Uh, they're, they're not to seek wealth. In the book of Revelation, it's all about the Christians getting this massively, this huge city of gold with gates of pearl. They're going to live in this luxurious existence forever. And Jesus says, don't worry about material things. They aren't supposed to matter to you. What matter are the spiritual things? And in the book of Revelation, it's all about how the Christians are going to dominate the earth. They're going to destroy most of people on the earth, and they're going to dominate everyone else and rule the nations with a rod of iron. Jesus is not, that's opposed to Jesus. Jesus says you're supposed to serve others, not to dominate them. And you're not supposed to serve others now so you can enslave them later. It's not the idea. Mm. The idea is the service is what matters. So at the end of my book, I contrast the teachings of Jesus with the teachings of John of Patmos. And it's 
I think it's right that John of Patmos considered himself a Christian. He was a particularly ardent Christian, but I don't think Jesus would recognize him as one of his followers. I think his, his message, in fact, is precisely contrary to the message of Jesus himself. And I find that I find that troubling because people, you know, people have different Jesuses to choose from. And in American culture today, people love the Jesus of Revelation, dominate everybody, take over, control everybody, get rich, rule the world. They love that kind of stuff. The idea of like giving away your possessions for others and serving others. And yeah, that's not so important. (laughs) Mm. Uh, I think that's a mistake. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I think that that is a fantastic note to end on. And so for people who want to find you online, uh, check out more of your work, where can they do that? There are two sites. I've got a website called barterman.com. And on that website, they can find out about courses I do. Uh, I do online courses and lectures. And I did one last a couple of days ago on Will You Be Left Behind? <laughs> a History of the Rapture. And so they can find out about it and um, see how they can acquire it. Uh, so that's that's the barterman.com. And so apart from that, I have a blog that I'd like people to know about. It's um, it's ermanblog. Uh, what is it? Uh, ermanblog.org or something. <laughs> I don't know. Look it up. Barterman <laughs> blog. <laughs> I've done this blog for 11 years. I post five times a week between 1,000 and 1,500 words every day, five days a week. I get comments from readers. I answer every question I get. Uh, and it's on everything having to do with the New Testament, Jesus, early Christianity, just everything connected with that. Uh, there's a small membership fee for people to join, uh, but I don't make any of the money. I give all the money away uh, to charities dealing with hunger and homelessness. Uh, this last year, we raised over $500,000 on the blog, and it all goes to charity. So I would like people to check it out because they can learn a lot about this kind of stuff. Uh, anything related to early Christianity or the New Testament, and it it helps out people in need. Awesome. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And the URL is ermanblog.org. There will also be a link in the show notes so people can all go check that out and we'll hopefully sign up for it. Well, Bart Ehrman, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. That's been great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. That is it for this show. The music is by 11D7. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my patrons at patreon.com slash Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening.